With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to iHeartRadio Communities, a public affairs special focusing on the biggest issues impacting you this week. Here's Ryan Gorman. Thanks for joining us here on iHeartRadio Communities. I'm Ryan Gorman, and we have some great conversations lined up for you. In a moment, we're going to spend some time discussing efforts to come up with the coronavirus vaccine, something I'm sure everyone is interested in. Plus, we're going to speak with an advisor to the Pandemic Action Network to lay out what you need to know about testing and contact tracing. To get things started, I'm joined now by Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at Columbia University, to talk about the progress being made on a COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Rasmussen, thank you so much for joining us. And let me start here. Putting aside the expedited work being done on a coronavirus vaccine for the moment, explain how the process of coming up with the vaccine typically plays out. That's a great question, and I think one that, that people have been really confused about because this is going so quickly for, for the coronavirus vaccine. So typically, the way this works is you start off with preclinical studies, actually. So that's um, looking at animal models, see how well the vaccine works before you even go anywhere near a human subject. Once you have a vaccine that works well uh, in those animal models, you um, will start a phase one trial. And then the, phase, the purpose of the phase one trial is to look primarily at safety. So is the vaccine going to harm the people that it's given to without any kind of concern for whether or not the vaccine works? You can kind of get some limited information from continuing to follow those subjects about the types of immune responses that they might mount to the vaccine. But the purpose of that phase is just to look at safety and make sure the vaccine is um, safe. The phase two trial is sort of a combination of looking at safety as well as um, looking at the types of immune responses that the vaccine uh, generates. So this would be more detailed studies about antibodies, about um, potentially T-cell responses that the vaccine can induce, and maybe you might get some efficacy data depending on how large and the type of trial that is designed. But the purpose of the phase three trial is really to look at efficacy, so whether or not the vaccine actually works. And of course, in the phase three trial, you'll continue looking at safety. You'll continue making sure that in a large group of people, the vaccine is safe to give to people. But the main purpose, as I mentioned, is to look at whether or not the vaccine works. And the way that that's done is by vaccinating a lot of people, so usually in the thousands waiting for those people to be naturally exposed to the pathogen you're trying to protect against and then comparing them to an equally large control group to determine if the people in the experimental group were more protected than the people in the control group against the the pathogen. So only then, um, and that usually takes years sometimes, depending on how prevalent the disease you're trying to vaccinate is. After that, looking at long-term immune responses as well, the vaccine will be approved and then they can start manufacturing it and taking it to the public. People are hearing a lot about antibodies in relation to COVID-19 and whether or not immunity from the virus will last. What do we know at this point about that aspect of this novel coronavirus? That's an excellent question too, because I think the the discussion around this topic has been really confused about um, the way that the immune system normally works. 
So how the immune system normally works when you're uh, exposed to a pathogen or you're vaccinated against something is you will get a quick spike shortly after becoming infected or being vaccinated of what we call IgG antibodies. And uh, most of these antibodies are what we call neutralizing, meaning that they render the virus non-infectious. After that initial spike, though, those antibody levels will normally drop and then they'll be maintained at a lower level over a longer period of time. The best vaccines will maintain these antibody levels for years, sometimes providing lifelong immunity. Sometimes you need a booster shot to maintain these sort of baseline levels of antibodies that are part of the immune response. So it is actually normal to see antibody antibody titers wane after um, natural infection. Probably as well, um, we will see them do that after immunity or after immunization. However, um, it's really, really important to note that antibody titers alone or antibody levels circulating in the blood don't necessarily indicate whether you are functionally protected from reinfection with that virus again. We do know that antibodies are important, but there are other parts of the immune system that also contribute to immunity. So T-cell responses, for example. T-cells are, um, they do a lot of things. They are primarily the coordinators of immune responses, as well as having the capability to go out and kill infected cells. So they're a really important part of lifelong memory immunity, as well as antibodies. And those are probably playing a role. In fact, we have increasing evidence that for coronavirus, T-cell responses may be very important. So just looking at antibody levels alone doesn't really tell us that much about whether being infected once or being vaccinated will provide protection. We don't have any real evidence that people are being reinfected uh, who have recovered from COVID-19. So there probably is protective immunity um, being induced in the vast majority of people who become infected with it. Hopefully, that will also apply to any vaccine that's developed. I'm joined now by Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at Columbia University, to talk about the progress being made on a COVID-19 vaccine. So this is a novel coronavirus, a new one, but we do know quite a bit about coronaviruses from the ones we've dealt with previously, like SARS. Does that help us in our efforts to come up with the vaccine? It's definitely helping us. So um, after SARS Classic emerged in 2003, uh, and MERS coronavirus emerged in uh, 2012, we, we certainly knew um, that there was the possibility that, that novel coronaviruses might emerge from their, res- uh, their reservoirs and wildlife and cause epidemics or pandemics. So we had already begun working on different vaccine platforms to target these viruses. And some of them, um, in fact, the vaccines that are furthest along in the clinical trial process are really the direct result of this type of research. The Moderna vaccine, for example, was already being developed for MERS coronavirus. That allowed those researchers, as soon as they got the sequence for SARS coronavirus 2 in early January, to begin making a vaccine for that pathogen. So this uh, past body's knowledge about coronaviruses has been incredibly helpful in our responses to this one. Are there differences from a vaccine that people are used to getting, the flu vaccine, and what can we expect with this one? Could it end up being the same setup where we have to get one every year? Absolutely. There are a number of differences. And uh, influenza, first of all, is a very different virus than coronaviruses. Um, It's a completely different family of viruses, so it it has evolved completely separately. Um, They're very different. So we're unlikely to see any kind of cross-protection between an influenza vaccine as well as a corona, you know, for coronavirus. 
it, another thing that's very different about them is that the influenza vaccine itself is what we call an inactivated vaccine. And so that means that basically you grow up huge amounts of influenza virus uh, in chicken eggs, which is how we do it now. You inactivate that chemically, so you make it non-infectious, and that's what you're vaccinating with. The coronavirus vaccines that are currently um, furthest along in the pipeline are newer vaccine platforms, um, including the Moderna mRNA vaccine, which gives you a piece of nucleic acid that encodes the spike protein from the coronavirus and causes your body to express that and then develop immune responses to it. The Oxford vaccine is what we call a viral vectored vaccine. So it's taking a different virus, in this case, a chimpanzee adenovirus, and covering that virus effectively with the spike protein from coronavirus so you have another virus that's not very pathogenic replicating in you. That's triggering your immune system to recognize that spike protein and mount immune responses to the coronavirus. So they're really very, very different vaccine platforms from the, the platform that we use for influenza shots. I'm joined now by Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at Columbia University, to talk about the progress being made on a COVID-19 vaccine. Obviously, we want a vaccine as soon as possible. But there is some concern about whether or not we're rushing the process because of the scale of this pandemic. What are your thoughts on the pace of the progress so far? Well, no question. Um, The accelerated pace of the vaccine development pipeline certainly prevents us from looking at um, longer term effects of these vaccines. So even though um, phase one, uh, phase one, two trials have been completed for the Moderna and the Oxford vaccines. Um, and we know that they have relatively acceptable safety profiles in the short term. We don't know much about long-term adverse effects, and we don't know much about long-term immunity or what we call durability, Um, so how long that immunity lasts. Um, So that is is certainly a concern, but at the same time, this is such an urgent public health problem that we really, out of necessity, had to compress this process into a much shorter period of time. What I do know and what I have more confidence in is the fact that uh, after these phase three trials, the same standards for approval will apply to these vaccines. So they have to be safe in large numbers of people. They have to be effective. They have to show um, at least 50% efficacy, meaning that at least 50% of the people in the phase three trial are protected by the vaccine against uh, severe disease at the very least. So um, we are still we are still using the same standards uh, for these vaccines that we would use for any other vaccine. Um, we're just doing it in a really a much shorter period of time. So I do have confidence that the, the vaccines that are approved will be safe. Um, I think that they will probably also be uh, somewhat effective. They may not be completely effective, but actually vaccines often are not completely effective. For example, the flu vaccine. Um, sometimes is, you know, 50 to 60 percent efficacy or 50 to 60 percent protective that still has a major public health benefit in that it makes disease less severe. So even if we don't have the perfect vaccine the first time around in terms of how well it works, um, we, it would still be hugely beneficial to all of us to have uh, fewer people going to the hospital, fewer people becoming severely ill. So I do, even though the process is greatly accelerated and there are some concerns about that, I do uh, feel confident that whatever vaccine is approved will work and will be safe to take. And personally, I would be, you know, I will take it as soon as I can. Final question for you. And this is the big money question. Uh, How quickly can we expect one? (laughs) (laughs) And that's the, the one question that it's still really hard to answer. 
So some of this um, really has to do with how quickly they can get efficacy data from the phase three clinical trials that are being conducted. And part of that is uh, really just a numbers game. So you have to try to recruit subjects for the phase three clinical trial who are in hotspots who are more likely to be exposed to the virus. Um, only then, by, by looking at uh, the, that data with enough people, can you determine statistically if there is a benefit to being vaccinated. So right now, that means that these vaccines are um, being, re- subjects are being recruited for these trials in places that are hot spots. So I would imagine um, places like California, Texas, and Arizona, Florida, uh, will be will be sources for, for subjects in this trial. Um, the Oxford vaccine, I know, is being trialed in Brazil and South Africa, where right now there are high rates of community transmission. So a lot of it depends on, on how quickly we can get efficacy data from uh, people in these hotspots. And they can be somewhat of a moving target. Um, certainly, you know, in March, it would have been great to recruit subjects for a trial like that in New York. Uh, now, it would be bad to, to do that because there's not very much community transmission occurring in New York State. It's actually one of the few states that uh, does not have a climbing case count. So a lot of it really depends on that. I suspect that the second they get some statistically robust efficacy data, um, the process will move forward. And one thing that Operation Warp Speed has done, has invested uh, in the vaccine manufacturers themselves so they can start preemptively manufacturing these vaccines before they're approved. Normally, a pharmaceutical company would not do that because it's a huge economic risk. Um, in this case, Operation Warp Speed has uh, offset that risk for these companies so they can go ahead and begin manufacturing, which will make it faster to roll that vaccine out to the general public. But one thing I, I think people should keep in mind is that even though that's happening, and even if we get efficacy data by August, late August or September, there's still going to be a delay at which this is rolled out to everybody. Um, it's really difficult to manufacture hundreds of millions, potentially billions of doses of these vaccines. Um, and so people are going to be getting access to the vaccine probably in a priority-based way. So I would imagine that initially, probably first responders, frontline healthcare workers will get access, uh, other people who are essential employees, perhaps people who are very vulnerable. Um, and then, you know, people will be getting access to it in a phased way. So it's not like the vaccine is going to be approved overnight. We're all going to get vaccinated and then everything's going back to normal. Dr. Angela Rasmussen, virologist at Columbia University. Dr. Rasmussen, thank you so much for taking the time to have this discussion with us and to share your expertise. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Finally, for some more insights into this current pandemic, I'm joined by Dr. Beth Cameron, Vice President for Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. She's also an advisor to the Pandemic Action Network. Dr. Cameron, thank you for taking some time to talk to us about the work your organization is doing. And let's begin with some background on the Nuclear Threat Initiative, how the organization came about and its mission. Thanks so much for having me on the program. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Nuclear Threat Initiative is an international security organization which exists 
to counter globally catastrophic nuclear and biological threats. And it was formed um, in 2000 by former U.S. Senator Sam Nunn and philanthropist Ted Turner because they were both very worried about potential for catastrophic risks, including the type of event that we're facing now with COVID-19. Historically, um, the group has, has looked at biological threats, whether deliberate, accidental, or naturally occurring like this pandemic is. And we seek to work with governments, with private sector experts, with international organizations, including the World Health Organization, in order to develop solutions um, so that we can prevent the likelihood um, of events like this from happening. Our current CEO is former Secretary of Energy Ernie Moniz, um, and I'm the Vice President for Global Biological Policy and Programs. When you mentioned biological a moment ago, you broke it down into three categories, and I think that's important because when people hear biological and threat, they automatically think biological weapons, things like that. But what you do is much broader than that, correct? Absolutely. Biological threats, whether they're caused by Mother Nature, whether they're accidentally released in a a laboratory, or whether they are deliberately released um, through a terrorist or, or a state attack, Um, have many things in common. For example, we need to be able to detect them early and we need to be able to respond to them rapidly and effectively. We also, though, in the case of an accidental or deliberate biological event, we need to be able to try to prevent them from happening in the first place. And so there are some additional things that countries need to do to be prepared for all three possibilities, but you can't work on biological threats or global health security, pandemic preparedness, without looking at all three, because chances are that you won't know exactly what happened um, in the very beginning. It will be confusing, and you'll need to be able to respond, detect, and be able to get out there and, and stop um, stop the outbreak as early as possible and to prevent it from you know, spreading and becoming an epidemic or a pandemic, if you can. Let's focus for a moment on the growing threat of global biological risks, specifically coming from nature, SARS, MERS, H1N1, COVID-19. It seems like we're seeing more and more of these viruses that go from an animal to humans. Talk a little bit about how that risk has grown over the past couple of decades. Well, humans are living you know, closer to animals in many cases, and we're also increasingly connected with one another um, through global travel and global trade. We're also seeing driving factors, things like climate change, which are changing the environment for, for animals and other disease vectors. And so um, we are going to see an increased frequency of epidemic and, and pandemic um, agents emerging, in my opinion. It's also true that as we are working towards um, countering biological threats and developing new and critical biotechnologies, we also need to be work, need to be concerned and need to work against the possibility that we could accidentally cause a pandemic um, by uh, misusing accidentally or deliberately technology. And so we need to be developing um, our whole arsenal of um, of capabilities to prevent detect and respond to pandemic threats in a safe and secure manner, while also recognizing that technology, developing better disease detection capabilities, better vaccines, and other countermeasures are going to be also the way that we ultimately get beyond biological threats. 
I'm joined by Dr. Beth Cameron, Vice President for Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. She's also an advisor to the Pandemic Action Network. So what specifically has the Nuclear Threat Initiative been working on as it relates directly to this coronavirus pandemic? So NTI, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, has been partnering um, with a number of organizations, including the Georgetown Center for Global Health Science and Security, the Center for Global Development, and Talus Analytics in, in a collaborative called covidlocal.org. And COVIDlocal is a, front, is a suite of capabilities and tools, really, for frontline decision makers. At the beginning of, uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were contacted, many of us in our individual capacities and in our individual organizations, were contacted by state and local leaders who had a lot of good public health information. They were getting guidance. Uh, from the CDC and from their local health organizations, wherever they were, whether they were mayors or um, or governor, people in governor's offices. And what we were hearing consistently is that it was hard for them to really work through the types of questions to ask those officials so they could understand if they were really prepared. So we worked with a group of experts, our organizations worked with a group of experts across the country to develop a checklist of capabilities. And we now have one for the United States we have another one that's geared towards low-income countries around the world. Uh, we also worked to develop a suite of metrics, a common set of metrics, so that if you're sitting in, in any given state or locality in America, you can look through the types of, of capabilities you should have in place um, in order to um, look at your social distancing policies for COVID-19 as um, states begin to reopen and now as states are considering whether to contract those policies. And then finally, we have a new tool uh, on that website called COVID AMP, which is geared at allowing policymakers and decision makers in states and localities in the United States uh, and around the world to be able to assess whether policies they have in place are actually working and to be able to retrospectively look at when a policy was put in place, if it actually helped to suppress, um, to contribute to suppressing the disease and reducing the case count. So we're really excited about continuing to build on this, and we'd love to have feedback from local leaders who might be listening um, to this um, pod, to this um, to this broadcast, and to be able to um, give us feedback. Again, the website is covid-local.org. That's covid-local.org. I'm joined by Dr. Beth Cameron, Vice President for Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, and she's an advisor to the Pandemic Action Network. Let's talk about testing and contact tracing for a moment. Can you explain the purpose of both of them and, and how they should work in conjunction with each other in order to help mitigate the spread of the virus? Testing is critically important so that you can understand what's actually happening with a disease in your community. So you want to know how many people are actually positive. And um, if someone is tested you want and, and, and is positive, you want to be able to identify their close contacts so that those people can quarantine themselves and avoid spreading the disease to others while they're being tested to determine whether or not they have the disease. So I'm speaking here about viral testing, testing to see if you're actually infected with the disease currently and capable of spreading it to other people. There are other kinds of testing, um, antibody testing, for example, to be able to tell um, whether or not you've been infected in the past with the disease. And those tests 
um, right now are less reliable um, and less easily easy to understand the results because we're still learning a lot about immunity um, to this virus and whether or not antibodies actually last for a long period of time or not. And so the critical um, factor for understanding how to suppress the disease in a community is really the diagnostic test with a nasal swab, um, which, which people are given to be able to test whether or not you have the genetic material for the virus um, in your respiratory system and are capable to, trans, uh, to transmit it to other people. So the ultimate goal of testing and tracing is to prevent each person from being able to spread the disease to one or more other people so we can ultimately reduce um, the number of people who are infecting others. And over time, you bring that curve uh, that everybody's been watching down um, to the point where each person is not actually infecting um, another person. And that's how you control disease. So it's quite important to get test results quickly yeah. so that you are not um, you are not spreading the disease inadvertently and you know that you're actually infected and that your contacts are infected. And right now uh, in America, the test turnaround times are quite high. In some cases, we're seeing test turnaround times of a week and sometimes even more. And if you don't get your test back for seven or more days um, and you're not isolating yourself in the meantime, you can be spreading the disease. So what I'd say is that as people are being tested, if they're able um, to isolate themselves from other people, that's really the right thing to do while you're waiting or to, to, um, to get your test results. You really want to quarantine yourself. Um, and then if you are positive, um, to remain in isolation for that two-week period of time. Really challenging for people who have essential jobs, really challenging for people who don't have the means um, to have supported isolation. And so those are activities that really need to be supported with financial resources but people are actually able to do that and reduce spread of the virus. I just want to follow up with one more question on testing and contact tracing. Obviously, our goal is to make it more widely available, more efficient. What are some of the solutions in order for us to do that, to do what we're doing, but even better? Really important for us to ramp up testing capability and contact tracing in the United States. And there are a number of barriers. But the first thing that I want to say is that it's quite important to actually have an understanding of what all the barriers are because they're different in different places. In some parts of the country, there actually is enough testing processing capability, but there isn't necessarily a way for another state to access that capability. So that, for example, if you have capability um, at a university in Boston and you're in Arizona in a place where you're overwhelmed and don't have enough testing capacity, making sure that there are agreements between states in place to utilize each other's capability and to have a system, a federal unified system and plan for doing that is quite important. So first, understanding where the gaps are and how to target resources to fill them. Second, taking advantage of rapid diagnostic testing and really aggressively pursuing um, rapid testing and, and innovation to get more use of rapid, um, rapid tests in America. The quicker the turnaround time, if we can get it down to 24 hours, that's best. We want people who are positive to be able to isolate so that they can't spread the disease to others and to know as quickly as possible um, whether or not that's the case. We also have a reagent shortage in this country, and reagents are the chemicals that are used in tests. And we really need um, a mechanism to be able, in my view, to be able to produce enough reagent to last us for the next 24 months, um, even when we have a safe 
affordable and equitable uh, vaccine in the United States and around the world, we're still going to have COVID-19 in the world and we're going to need to be able to be prepared to test. So we need to be planning using tools like the Defense Production Act, for example, to be able to create enough reagents, enough swabs, and enough test kits so that we're able to be prepared and, in fact, over-prepared um, for, for COVID-19 for the foreseeable future. And final question for you. I'm talking to Dr. Beth Cameron, Vice President for Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative and an advisor to the Pandemic Action Network. Right now, we're dealing with this resurgence of the virus. We've got the looming threat of a second wave in the fall that coincides with flu season. Why is a second wave likely? Why do many experts think that is quite possible it's going to happen? And how would the flu coinciding with that complicate things? The first thing I want to say is that we're still in the first wave of COVID-19. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to suppress it in the United States. And so with 60,000 or so cases a day still in America um, here in July, in August, in September and October and moving into flu season, it's likely that we're going to be still dealing with a large number of cases of COVID-19 in a, at a time frame when we'll be seeing an increase in people experiencing symptoms consistent with the flu and also common colds. And so as people start to move indoors as it gets colder, you can see an increase in the, the likelihood of spreading COVID-19 as well as the flu when it emerges. And we'll see an increase in, in need for people to be tested, not being able to necessarily differentiate between who has flu and who has COVID-19. Also, as we start to see people getting the flu and experiencing uh, sickness, that's another factor that will go into overwhelming, already overwhelmed healthcare and hospital systems. So it's really important that we do everything that we can right now in July, in August, and in September before flu season to get our caseloads down, to be able um, to have a collective way of dealing with COVID-19 in this country such that we are um, able to respond to an increase in caseload uh, and also the addition of the flu that is likely to come in the fall. Dr. Beth Cameron, Vice President for Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. She's also an advisor to the Pandemic Action Network. Dr. Cameron, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise on this issue. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Of course, a big thanks to all of our guests and to all of you for listening to iHeartRadio Communities. I'm Ryan Gorman. Stay safe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.